Listener Production. Hello, it's Jan and Annika here and welcome to this special episode of The Briefing for today, the 25th of April, which is Anzac Day. And I hope that wherever you are, you're commemorating and celebrating with family and friends. We thought we'd do something a little different today. We're going to chat with a woman named Rachel Kerrigan. Now, she has an incredible story. She's an Afghan war vet who hit rock bottom, but that's not even the half of it. No, not at all. And as you'll hear, Rachel is far from rock bottom now. And there's one thing in particular, actually, that she credits for that incredible turnaround in her life. She joins us now. Rachel, welcome to The Briefing. Let's start at the beginning. Talk us through your time in the military. When did you first join? Uh, I first joined the military in 1997 um, as part of my university degree where I was going through the University of Newcastle to become an electrical engineer. And what expectations did you have before joining the armed forces? Are you from an armed forces family? And I wonder how that differed when you got there. I didn't really have any expectations. So my grandfather has seen military action and was part of Kokoda and Borneo. So I actually didn't find out about his service until I was 18. And um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do at that stage. And then once I found out about that, I decided that the military was where I wanted to go. But I didn't really have any expectations. So when I got in and joined, it was amazing. I loved the lifestyle. I loved the career opportunities. I loved the mates that I made and I just got to experience so much of the world. So it was a really, really fantastic career. Yeah. So what was your time like? What were you actually doing when you were in the military and for how long were you doing it? I was in the Air Force for seven years in total before I was medically discharged. My role was an engineering officer. So I had a range of different roles. I worked in logistics. I worked on the aircraft um, where I worked my way up to sort of be one of the senior engineers that looked after the aircraft. And during that time, I did um, a stint in Afghanistan. And what does that involve? Because, you know, when you say stint in Afghanistan, for someone that doesn't really know anything about what that's like other than what we see on the news, what, what was that like for you day to day? No different to being really at home, except we're in a war zone, so the tempo was a little bit higher. Um, Are you sure it's no different to being at home? Because it seems very (laughs) different from back here. The operation, the way we carry on work and do things isn't any different. So, of course, you're in a different country. For myself, there were some times that weren't particularly good, so I had a few traumatic events over there. But as far as what to expect, it's hard to sort of explain to someone. So we just do what we do every day. It's just in a war zone. So instead of working in a hangar, you know, we're working on tarmac or under a tent and, you know, we're sleeping in tents and that sort of thing. So um, I suppose living conditions were a little bit different, but the day-to-day work, it's what we're trained to do. It's what we sort of were expected to do. So didn't really think anything of it while we're over there. You just get in and do it and then you sort of come home. I wanted to ask you about civilian life. You talked about being medically discharged. What was it like, I guess, leading up to your decision to leave the military and then taking that plunge back into life in Australia? Um, Well, I didn't actually make the decision willingly to leave the military, um, which made it even a more difficult journey. And civilian life is a lot different to military life. Um, It does take a bit to get used to. For me personally, I found it a lot different. I had quite a successful career doing project management and contract administration in heavy industry and defence, but there was just something that wasn't quite right. And yeah, it was 
um, I don't know how to even <laughs> put it into words. It was just um, a different experience. I mean, I enjoyed it. It was just very different. You seem like you were in some ways like really thriving when you were in the military. And sometimes people think it's like, oh, that that's a, seems like a really difficult thing to do to go to a completely different country and be in this intense circumstance. But sometimes actually re-entering civilian life can be somewhat harder and you found that aspect of it challenging. Yeah, yeah, it, it's very different, you know, especially when you're medically discharged. You know, I had this dream and this, I suppose, desire to be in the military for my whole life and to have that taken away and then to find where you fit when so much of who you are revolves around your military lifestyle and being in the military to actually move into civilian life and then find where you fit, how you fit and who you are now that that person has been taken away is something that's very difficult and a lot of people struggle with just from just working out who you are, working out how to get into a job. You know, some people, including myself, I mean, I was pretty lucky. I got, when I first moved into roles, I was sort of headhunted as such, but you know, a lot of people that move out of the military, they've never written a resume before. Mm. They've never gone through a full interview before. So the whole experience of gaining and getting a job and getting employed can be quite daunting if you don't have those skills and you know, you've been in the military from when you left school. It's a totally different experience. And things got pretty bad for you on the outside when you were trying to make this incredible transition. How did you deal with that and how did it dawn on you that perhaps you needed some assistance? I didn't really see it at first. You just sort of plod along and, you know, I had other stuff happening in my life and I just sort of assumed it was the pressure from work and stress from work and those sort of things. You know, I didn't really attribute anything I was experiencing to any of the traumatic events. And then in 2010, um, I had a full mental and physical breakdown and was diagnosed with severe post-traumatic stress disorder and chronic depressive disorder and actually tried to take my life on three separate occasions. So it was um, a fairly daunting experience and not one, looking back now, I can sort of see the gradual decline, but Mm. at the time I didn't realise it and didn't really realise what was happening to myself and didn't have the support around me to sort of have someone say, hey, you know, I don't think you're doing okay, you're right. So having that support when I think people leave the military, especially from family and friends, is such an important part of the journey for a veteran. In hindsight, looking back, what were some of those, I guess, early signs that yourself or people around you might have picked up on reflecting on it now, but at the time you attributed to other things? Anxiety, um, a little bit of hypervigilance. I wasn't sleeping. I was having nightmares. There were times where I was sleeping under the kitchen table because I felt safe there and just not processing information as quickly and easily as possible. Um, Getting angry with things that normally wouldn't make me angry. Things that people do when they're stressed, but on a higher level. So it was affecting me at home as well as at work. So I wasn't the same person. My personality was changing because there was stuff going on I couldn't understand. I wasn't sleeping, so I was tired as well. And it's hard sometimes to see those changes in people. That's why it's important to have family and friends and people around Mm. you. When people don't know you particularly well at work, those friends and family can notice some of those differences around you, like the personality changes, the things that you're doing differently. I started to sort of 
pull away from people and I actually became a full agoraphobe so I couldn't actually even leave the house or hold a conversation Mm. with anyone because my anxiety was just too high. How long did this go on for for you, Rachel? How long were you experiencing this kind of smorgasbord of symptoms, I guess? Pretty much just from the period we got back. So for the first, I think, three weeks, um, I slept under the kitchen table because I just couldn't sleep in the bed. It just felt safer for some reason under there. Um, I suppose, you know, when they say you leave a little piece of you behind, um, you know, my marriage felt broke down and things like that because my partner was saying to me that, you know, I'm not the same person and it was just very difficult. And I suppose being on my own and being a single mum, I didn't see that. So it sort of went from 2007 till I was diagnosed in 2010. Okay. So for three years, what was the moment where you decided this is rock bottom, I have to turn this around? Was there a particular moment? Uh, Yeah, it was actually the first time I attempted to take my life. So that was when I suppose I was diagnosed because it all just sort of happened really quickly. I was at work. It felt like all the walls were closing in. I had a major anxiety attack and it just sort of all fell into a heap right then and there. I had noticed along the way that there were things that weren't particularly right, but it's so hard sometimes to get help, uh, especially when, you know, a lot of services and that there's waiting periods and things and just talking to people and that, you know, people, oh, you're just stressed from work. You're just tired. And I suppose also that military mindset of pushing on and just getting on with it, you know, it'll be right tomorrow. Um, You don't recognise that sort of stuff yourself. And when you did decide in that moment to seek help and that this wasn't right, And when you started to get help, did it feel, I guess, overwhelming how much work you would have to do? Or did it feel like a sense of relief that you were, I guess, finally on a different path and people around you realised, I guess, the seriousness of what was going on for you? I don't think it's that simple. So um, when I was diagnosed, I went through quite a few years of living in this bubble of being diagnosed with PTSD. So I was on 30 tablets a day just to get through the day, you know, to manage my anxiety, my depression, nightmares, anger issues, all of that sort of stuff. So I actually got to a point on the medication where I ballooned up to 119 kilos. I often say that, you know, like I knew my daughter was telling me a joke but I, and I knew I had to laugh, but I didn't find it funny. I knew I loved my daughter, but I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel mm. anger. I didn't feel sadness. I didn't feel joy. It was just numbness. But in saying that, it got me to the next point and that went on for years. And then I had a stress-induced stroke, lost all movement down the left-hand side of my body and sort of had to recover from that. And then we went through a period of homelessness and other sort of pressures and stress with other illnesses and that I went through. So it wasn't, I suppose, a progression as such that I, I sort of went through. I was stuck in the fact that this is as good as your life is going to be. And that's what I was told, you know, this is your new reality. You'll never work again. Mm. Um, you'll be on medication for the rest of your life and you're just going to have to learn how to live with it. And it wasn't until a few years later, I mean, my daughter was amazing and she sort of helped me through, but I had someone say to me, why, why can't you do these things? And I said, what do you mean? And they're like, well, you're still Rachel. You're not your diagnosis. So, okay, you've got different parts of you now and that diagnosis forms part of who you are, but you can still dream. You can still have desires. You can still move forward. Why don't you? Mm. And that sort of said to me, you know what? 
okay, my life isn't what I thought it was going to be, but it doesn't mean it still can't be what I want it to be. And that was the moment that I started moving forward and my daughter found the Invictus Games and that's where my journey really started. So um, it wasn't until someone sort of made me realize that I'm not my diagnosis, I'm still me and I still can do what I want to do. I just had to find that path and that direction and the confidence. And from the games onward is sort of where my rehabilitation had started. So it sounds like you got medical help in a sense, but it wasn't until you found that therapeutic help through sport that it really helped your recovery. So can you just tell us a little bit about how that changed you and and the path it's taken you on? So I wasn't anyone that went to the games and won medals or anything like that. Um, I had a totally opposite experience with that. But there was a one moment in time I was actually walking around on my own and was quite upset because I didn't do very well and was thinking, you know, I'm hopeless at this and um, was getting quite depressed. And I saw there was a 100-meter running race and there was a UK member, was a WMPT and had only just got his running legs. So the race started and everyone ran through and got to the end. And he was still pretty much at the start line coming through. They all went back, ran with him and celebrated him crossing that finish line more than what they celebrated the person who got the gold. And that's Mm. when I realized and the moment hit me that, you know, we all have our challenges. We all have things that we have to get through, but it's about celebrating those little victories. It's about taking those little steps forward that actually move you forward. The biggest thing for him was actually getting across that finish line. And then that's when I sort of took a look at myself and I went for the past three years, I haven't been able to leave the house and here I am in America competing in front of crowds. That's a big leap. That's a big step. You've done that. Mm. Um, I found a sport that I loved. I reconnected back with people in a community that I didn't know I was missing until I reconnected with them. And, you know, through sport, I found my passion again. I found routine I found something that actually fueled me and it not only helped me physically, but it also helped me mentally. And through the games, I've been lucky enough to find work with Invictus Australia and be able to help other veterans go through that same journey. So at the games at the moment, I'm in the Netherlands and I'm here as a family and friend. I met a veteran during a transition seminar. I've been training him in powerlifting He's had a very traumatic experience himself leading up to these games and he's asked me to come across as his family and friends. So I'm experiencing it from that side as well. So it's been a wonderful journey through sport that has helped me step forward, helped me find a career and a purpose. I've been competing in powerlifting now outside of the games. I've competed in wheelchair basketball. I've taken up lawn bowls Mm. and I've found my own family and I've found where I fit and I've found where I belong. And that looks different for everyone who does sport, but it's something that's familiar across all the forces and something that we're used to. And it's just such a tool to help in all the steps of the rehabilitation. You know, it's not a magic bullet, but it is definitely a step in the right direction and a step in the path of rehabilitation. I mean, Rachel, you've had such an incredible life. You know, you you go from having uh, PTSD, you go from having a stroke, which, you know, prevents you from using a particular side of your body. You were talking a little bit there about being homeless, about being a single parent. And to see where you are now is incredible. 
But you're just one person and we have so many vets in this country that also suffer from PTSD, anxiety, uh, and, and just find it really difficult to reintegrate back into life. What do you think we can be doing more for veterans in Australia? Yeah, and um, you know, my story unfortunately <laughs> is very common. I think by supporting organizations such as ours, like Invictus Australia, that is looking at finding proactive ways to help veterans to actually understand how the veteran community works. So we help sports understand what it looks like to be a veteran, whether that's someone who's serving, whether that's someone who's transitioning, whether that's someone who's out of service, what does that mean? How can they support? And I've seen through that, I've seen how that then also helps a community outside of the veteran space to be more understanding, but, you know, also to add value to their lives because of what the people who have served can add to organisations such as sporting organisations and the community. So, in supporting organisations like Invictus Australia in actually sort of taking the time to talk to a veteran and find out, you know, a bit about their journey and, you know, say thank you for their service and just sort of not forget what we've done and what we've sacrificed to be here because at the end of the day there's still people that give the ultimate sacrifice and that may not be in war because of what they've been through. So just getting that understanding and supporting organisations that support veterans is a really great way to sort of help them move forward. That was Rachel Kerrigan speaking to us. She's an Afghan war vet with an incredible story. And look, if this brought up anything for you and you want to talk to someone, please remember that Lifeline is always available. Their number is 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. And that is it for our Anzac Day special briefing episode. We will be back with regular programming tomorrow. Hope you can join us. Catch you soon. Listener.